As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're done with your Oreo. Yeah, <laughs> done with my Oreo. Okay, good. Um, Do you really know what happened? The brother did. The brother, that's what I thought too. I mean, that seems like kind of obvious. Hey, do you want to talk about death? Yeah, I mean, welcome to Mystery Murdery Thing. I can tell you started because you put on your <laughs> podcasting voice. Right, I slipped it on. Feels good, like a little a night a night a nightgown. Right. Yeah. I was thinking it's more like a suit that's like just a little too flashy where it doesn't, it doesn't look quite good it's like you're trying to look good but it doesn't really look good you show up to the wedding late right you look too flashy you're wearing like a pale blue like tuxedo and it's like you're wearing those checkered vans because you couldn't find your dress shoes right exactly your hair's all tussled Anyway, <laughs> oh, you just hit the mic. My bad. <laughs> Sorry, y'all. Oh, yeah, I think I noticed that at the beginning of the last episode, too. <laughs> well. I think it was me, though. <laughs> things are things are happening here in the podcasting tent. It's true. Welcome to Mystery Fort. Murdery Thingy. <laughs> yes, welcome to Mystery Murdery Thingy. I'm Mario. I'm Chloe. We're going to talk about mysteries. And murderies. And thingies. Ooh. And all sorts of thingies. Um, but I'm doing another assassination because that's like I'm excited. half of the ones that I do. I'm excited. Are you excited? I am in excitement. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I am a bolt of excitement. Oh I am frustration. Um, I don't know what you're doing, but is it from Inside Out or something? <laughs> no, it's um. I think it's a vine. I am in, oh, okay. I am in confusion. I see. Oh, I know that one. Yeah. <gasps> Isn't that like an old Indian woman? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. America, explain. <laughs> um, should I go first? Sure. Okay. Great. Because I usually like to go first. Here, you can hold it. Okay. Okay, thank you. We're taking turns. It's fun to take turns. Um, okay. Let's get together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm doing another assassination. Okay, like I'm I said. in. I'm excited. And uh, so, but, but, okay, so last week I did, uh, or not last week, but two weeks ago, I did an assassination in New York City. This time I'm doing one on 
literally the other side of the world. Nice. So this is going to be um, the assassination of Chia Vichia, uh, who was like a, a workers' advocate and uh, like a, a un- union leader in Cambodia. Cambodia. Okay. Yeah, Cambodia. So, um, so I'll kind of kind of started out by talking about what happened on the morning of January twenty second, two thousand and four. Um, that morning started out, you know, pretty much like like most others for Vichia, except that it was Chinese New Year, so that was kind of special, right? Um, so that morning he was, according to his widow, Chia Kimney, uh, quote, plucking his mustache and studying the Khmer English Dictionary, close quote. Oh, is um, he you? <laughs> <laughs> right, I know, right? And, and he spoke pretty good, pretty good English uh, from the documentary I watched. And uh, what Kimney says is that he planned on staying home that day with their young child, uh, their daughter, who was like maybe three or four at the time. And um, he received a mysterious phone call. And she doesn't know who he talked to or what they talked about. But right after he received the call, he said, I'm going to head out. And he didn't say where he was going. So he asked if their child wanted to go with him, and she said no. She wanted to stay home with her mom. So he left and went to kind of one of his usual spots, which was a um, newspaper stand, you know, like a little, you know, just on the street newspaper stand where he was reading um, the uh, morning edition of the Cambodia Daily along this kind of narrow sidewalk near a really busy street in the Chamkarman district of uh, Phnom Penh, the, the capital of Cambodia. And this is how the newspaper stand owner, Varsothi, described what happened next uh, to, to Cambodia Daily. Quote, He sat and read the Cambodia Daily newspaper opposite to me. Chia Chia usually came to read the newspapers, sometimes in the morning and sometimes in the evening. When I saw the attacker coming in, I did not pay any attention to him. Then he shot via Chia Chia. Bam! It just happened super quick. In public? It's super public. But kind of. So, two, so two men on a Honda motorcycle, right, had stopped abruptly right there on the street next to Chia, or sorry, next to Vichia. Um, they weren't covering their faces or anything, by the way. Um, the one who was on the back of the motorcycle casually just got off of it walked over next to Vichia and shot him three times at point-blank range, within arm's length, according to Sothi. He was hit once in the left arm, once in the heart, and once in the head. And then the attackers speeded off. It took, like, two seconds, you know, and they were gone. <clears throat> and Vichia was laying there dying. And, um, you know, it it's... It, it's obviously extremely tragic, right? And, and but it's not something that was unexpected at this time in this context in in like Cambodia, um, especially for a man like Vichia, who was very famous in Cambodia as you know a um, opponent of the government and um, you know of, of of the sort of the bosses and the, the the powerful people in Cambodia who were not giving the fair shake, right, in his mind to the workers that he represented and, and who he was as well. Uh, he himself was a, was a garment worker as well. And uh, he had no small number of really powerful enemies, and he knew this. Everyone knew this. And everyone also knew that 
he was prone to going to this particular newsstand in the mornings mm-hmm. or the evenings. Routine. Yeah. So Vichia, like many other, so many other, you know, fearless advocates that we've we've talked about before. But there's like too many to even like start naming them. But he's just like one of these people, right, who knew that they were in harm's way, acknowledged this, right, but kept on fighting. Like literally in those terms. Like I was telling you when when I watched the documentary, he was literally like you know, I know I'm in danger, but I can't stop. You know, if if I stop, who's going to fight for these people? They'll have nobody. So I can't. To th- I think he said something like, for me to stop would be like dying. So he knew that he would probably be killed someday, but to him, not fighting for the workers and the people he cared about was literally like dying. It was just as important as physically dying to him. So it, it's it's interesting. He that's kind of I, th- I think that's kind of how he put it. So it's it's an interesting kind of philosophy. I mean, it's very extreme, right? But he he, he was very extreme when it came to like his advocacy, right? Yeah. He he was uh, um, had very few limits in that respect. So so just kind of so to lay that groundwork, right? So anyway, um, oh, he had also um, been more cognizant of this danger, right? Of um, that that he was in, like, to his life more recently before this. And again, this is January 22nd, 2004. And the previous July, there had been um, elections in Cambodia, which were very fraught. And, and, and I don't want to get, like, too much into the history or, like, politics of Cambodia, but... We- we have to talk about it a little bit at yes. some point. Yes, give us So a I guess we, we may as well just talk about it now. So, yeah, go what, ahead. Just like what he was fighting for and why and sure. how it all came to be. Definitely. Okay. So you can't talk about the history of Cambodia without talking about the Khmer Rouge immediately. Oh, like of it's the most important thing that's happened. Um, I mean, one of the most important events in world history in the past 50 years that no one ever talks about. I mean, it's one of the most horrific genocides that's ever been committed in the world on the same level of intensity and horrificness as the Holocaust, as the the Rwandan genocide that we just had the 25th anniversary of. Um, it It is truly, uh, I believe, and, and, and I'm sorry if I get this incorrect, but I believe the figure is that 25% of the population of the country was killed in this 15-year period or whatever it was. So this is where they're coming out of, right? And, th- and this was in the 70s to 80s to 90s, I believe, somewhere in that wow. nature. So it was not that long ago. And this, when, when my story happened, was in the early 2000s. So by this point, a former commander in the Khmer Rouge is the leader of the country, Hun Sen, there's also a king who right. nominally is the leader of the country but has no, like, really no true power in my understanding. And and again, I'm not, like, a Cambodia expert, but this is what I sort of gleaned from my research. The um, other two contenders in the July 2003 elections were a gentleman I can't remember who represented <clears throat> the Royalist Party. And then um, a another party, which uh, was the one that uh, Chia Chia was supporting, um, which was the Sam Rainsy party. And Sam Rainsy was a, um, a, a an opposition, um, uh, you know, parliamentarian or, or you know, politician who was kind of the the 
it seems like right in a, in a sort of facile understanding the the true you know uh, voice of the people right in in this context and Chiva Chi was very much behind him and what Sam Rainsy uh, Sam Rainsy said in the documentary was interesting he said and I think this is really true sometimes they go after the secondary targets because they know yeah. that going after the the head person right killing Sam Rainsy of the Sam Rainsy party would cause too much bullshit for the government, right? Mm-hmm. For it to even be worth it. But you killed Chia Chia, it's huge, right? I mean, this was huge world news at the time. You know, he he was an internationally known figure for, for being a, an opposition figure in, in Cambodia. But they could basically get away with it, as we'll, as we'll kind of see. So... So that's a little bit of the of the background. But li- leading up to this event itself, uh, Vichia had received numerous specific death threats. And one very chilling one was a text message that read, quote, a dog, I will kill you, 260703, close quote. And for, just to understand, in a lot of the world, they say the, the, the day first and then the month and then the year. Yes. So that's what that is, July 26th, 2003, which, of course, he was not killed on that day. But that may be in part because he was in hiding at that time. Oh. Um, but as was his nature, Vichia was not going to remain in hiding forever. And he was not going to leave the country. What he said was, why should I leave the country? What's the point of that? Then how could I do my advocacy, right? Right, right. He won't be doing his work, and then he exactly. might as well be dead. Exactly. And yeah, his work was more important. Um, so he was not phased, really, by these threats. And <clears throat> he came out of hiding. And his brother, Chiamoni, uh, Chiamoni, excuse me, said that, quote, he wouldn't listen to anybody, mm-hmm. close quote. So he was, he was just insistent that this is, like, what he was going to do, uh, one way or the other. So... Um, he led this, you know, free union, right? And and there at that time were free unions and government controlled unions. It, it, so it's a, it's a it's a complicated political situation in Cambodia. the The whole history of workers' rights and collective action in Cambodia is very fraught because, on the one hand, they had by this time, by the early two thousands, nominally instituted a, a number of reforms. Um, and nominally, people had the right to free assembly, to mm-hmm. the creation of free unions, to protest. But on the ground, things weren't really that way at all for for anyone, really. And um, the government uh, basically did not hold to their word or to the rule of law in, in any of these instances where they had signed on to treaties or passed laws or even in the Constitution of Cambodia itself. So in the law books... We have freedom of this, that, and the other thing, but the government wasn't really... Exactly. It wasn't really like that. Kind of like when, after Brown versus Education, it didn't really, Mm -hmm. you know, happen. Yeah, because people act with impunity. You know, at some point, if the person on the ground doesn't agree with what the law says, they're just not going to do it, you know? And especially if the leader of the country doesn't agree with it either, you know, at least in the case of Brown versus Board of Education, there was uh, a president who was willing to send the National Guard to enforce the law. You know, if the president hadn't been willing to do that, then the segregation of South never would have done it. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, we could get into a whole thing about how segregation in America has not ended 
nor has it gotten better, but I mean, that's a whole at, different topic. Look at Chicago. <laughs> yeah, literally. Look at look at maps of anyway, well we don't need to get into that whole other thing. So um Vichia was one of these central people, right, fighting for the authorities to match the promises that they had made on paper in those various, you know, laws, trees, constitution. Um, sadly, though, the government of Hun Sen does not seem to have met those responsibilities in many, many instances. Um, and that very much includes the investigation into Vichia's killing. Mm-hmm. So although the police responded quite quickly and, and with um, overwhelming force it, right after the slaying, right, when uh, – um, uh, what what's her name? I, I forget now. The um, – the shop owner called the the ambulance right away, right? And the police came, and but the crime scene was not cordoned off. So many journalists and other members of this huge crowd that was pressing in, you know, tainted any evidence that they could have gotten from this, for the crime scene. I feel like this is a classic thing. I know, right? It's always the Every crime scene time. that's never quarantined with assassinations. They do this investigation, and the number one thing that never happens is that they don't secure the crime mm-hmm. scene. And sometimes it's incompetence, and sometimes, as probably more so here, it's intentional incompetence, right? And the police also moved his body after about five minutes without um, really doing any sort of you know forensic examination at on, on site, uh, in situ, one might say. Um, so, oh, oh uh, Sothi was the name of the, um... Shopkeeper? Yeah. So, um, according to her, the investigators, led by Deputy Police Chief Heng Polv, produced a fake composite drawing, which she says bore no resemblance to the actual shooter, who, of course, she saw. She also says that the investigators told the press that she had given a description of the shooter, which was absolutely not true. Um, and in fact, she called the deputy police chief, Hang Pov, to tell him, why did you tell the press that? That's not true. I never told you that. And he had to correct the record later and was like, it, don't write about this. If you write about the shopkeeper, you're going to hurt Chia Vachia's, you know, the investigation. It, it, so he didn't really say it, but it, he was he was sort of walking it back, you know, without having to say it. So it's kind of, it's kind of interesting. But she seems she seemed like a really... Uh, strong person Mm -hmm. like she was like no like i'm not gonna let you just lie about what i said that's that's my did seem like a matter of pride to her so i got which i totally agree with i appreciated that um so anyway she um the the uh there was a lot of pressure on the the police at this point right to find the killer we see this a lot as well right Mm -hmm. all over the world especially in america where it's like, okay, when when are you going to find the killer? It's been a day. It's been two days. It's been a week. Like, And it's not necessarily the worst thing because obviously, yes, the police should be held to account to run a proper investigation. But it can also create some bad incentives, right? Unnecessary haste. Yeah, exactly. And in a system like this where the rule of law doesn't really apply, it's really, really bad, right? Because the police did find two men to arrest after 48 hours. Um, their names are uh, Born Somnang and uh, Sok Samun. And uh, this is, of course, despite the fact that um, Born Somnang had an alibi 
placing him at least 40 miles away from Phnom Penh in the sort of a little more rural town where his girlfriend lives. And he was placed there by like between a dozen and 20 witnesses, many of whom were willing to come forward and did so in open court. Um, and while Simnang had these witnesses, you know, willing to come forward to, to, to testify and verify to his alibi, Sok Samun was not so lucky. He had an alibi that he, he was at a party in Phnom Penh uh, to celebrate Chinese New Year because, mm-hmm. again, it was Chinese New Year. And um, the witnesses, though, were unwilling to come forward um, because of the danger. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the some of the witnesses who came forward on behalf of um, uh, Born Samnang uh, had to leave the country because they were arrested. The, the police were harassing them. Um they were in danger just because they were a witness to an alibi, wow. which is pretty insane. It's pretty fucked up, right? I didn't expect that. Yeah, it, but it's the the system there just seems like so deeply corrupted. You know that it um, it's it's very insecure. You know, if you if the police have a reason to make trouble for you, then it's it just gets very very hairy very very quickly. So there was no real evidence, right, linking them to the crimes. Um, but yet they were convicted. They were convicted and their conviction was upheld on numerous appeals. Any exculpatory witnesses or evidence were discouraged or worse. Um, They were held in pretrial detention for more than a year, despite the fact that there's a nominal restriction of six months for pretrial detention in the Cambodian constitution, I believe. All of this was widely seen, both domestically and internationally, as a total debacle, as a, as a complete show trial, um, wow. and, and a real disservice to Chiavachia and, you know, any sense, sense of justice that one would have for him. Show trial meaning, like, there, we're just going to do this just to please you all. We already know what we want to do, right? And this is a common phenomenon, actually. Um, in many contexts, I was just hearing them talk about this sort of... Um, um, phenomenon in uh, Iran, I believe, um, in the right, right in the case of Jason Rezaian, the the Washington Post um, reporter who was brought up on trumped up charges in Iran and held for over five hundred days. Um, they said he was like a CIA spy, whereas there was no evidence to that effect. But there was a trial, right? A judge came in, everybody sat down. It was all orderly. People had papers in front of them. But it was all meaningless. It's a show. It's just a fucking show. But it's so that you can go and say, no, but we had a trial. You know, we, we're not a lawless country, like you're saying. We had a trial. They they went through the process. They had an appeal. They were allowed to speak, you know. Wow. But it's just not real. So um, the a little bit, just a little bit, a bit more of history and context. Um, apparently during the Khmer Rouge genocide that we were talking about earlier all judges were killed and there were only reportedly 10 persons left in the country with legal training so as a consequence of this judges that you know are there now presumably and certainly at this time in the early 2000s were largely extremely incompetent and reportedly all of them without exception were beholden to the executive branch um, or other co- corrupted, you know, in, intents. Um, 
but but le- legally, like formally, they were beholden to the executive branch, uh, just because that's kind of how it it's set up in Cambodia, apparently. So unfortunately, Samsung uh, or born Samnang rather, and some uh, Sung Un, uh, Suk Samun, sorry, had no real chance, right, for a fair trial, um, with one exception, um, and only one exception, and this was the first investigating judge, uh, Hang Tirith from the Phnom Penh Municipal Court. He ordered, after hearing all the the evidence and everything, right, that the case be dismissed due to lack of evidence from the police because they didn't have none, uh, really. And, uh, however, this ruling was overturned, um, and that judge was reassigned to a very unfavorable assignment um, immediately afterwards. This is all scarily well-organized and efficient and Mm -hmm. that's freaky it is yeah definitely it's very like it's very hairy it's very there's lots of secret cloudy shit going on and in the documentary they show how like at during this same exact time um you know they show uh the, what is it? The uh, the American ambassador and a different uh, the British ambassador or something, having like you know this fancy dinner with Hun Sen when he finally got the prime ministership after a extended you know battle after the July two thousand three elections and it's like, you know the the U S is like oh you know things are getting better you know that's like it's not not how it used to be. You know, when they were killing millions of people, uh, well, okay, but it's still not good, right? And it's still not worthy of praise when shit like this happens. Uh, you know, it's it's just – it's disappointing, you know. And one has to imagine that if it were the Clinton or Obama administrations and not the Bush administration that were, you know, around at that time, maybe it would have been different. But I'm not – I don't know. I don't really – I don't know. Maybe not. I probably not. It probably would have been the fucking same, honestly. But anyway, um, they were sentenced uh, to 20 years um, in jail, but continually pleaded their innocence. And it's if you watch the documentary about this, who killed Chiavachia? It is that documentary is is uh, hard to get through. Oh, wow. um, and especially the parts where they come in, you know where they're allowed to talk to the press or they come into the court and they're just screaming, you know, like, this is injustice. They're torturing me. You know, they made me confess. They're just, they're yelling this, you know, just continuously. Like, I didn't do this. I'm being tortured. You know, this, it's just crazy. This is like the Khmer Rouge. Like, they say that at one point. Like, this is the same thing that's happening right now. Do we know where they found these guys? Yeah, I can get into that a little bit if you want me to. Yeah, it's essentially what? they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. The um, way that this kind of works, and, and I was going to kind of get into this this right now, actually, because it's essentially the suspects in this case, right? It's the police, right? I mean, there's not really any other credible suspects other than the, that the police did this. And the, the way that this kind of works reportedly in this it, 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 at this time in the Cambodian police was that um, – you know, there, there's like the the guy who runs the police, the four star general of the police, who's like the right hand man to Hun Sen, the the uh, the leader of the country, and um, it kind of goes down from there, right? And at the level of a, an investigation like this or a hit job like this, yeah, um, a, a a figure like Hang, Hang Pov, who's the the deputy um, uh, police chief in in Phnom Penh at that time, I believe. 
um, has essentially his, you know, his um, uh, overt ranks, right? And then he has his covert ranks, his secret police that work underneath him. What? Whom he pays directly, right, from, a, a, you know, probably corruption that he's getting his money from. That's a thing? And it's all off the books. And apparently this, in Cambodia, was very much a thing. All of the the commanders and, and higher-ranking people had secret police working under them. So do you think we'll ever get any names of who No. This? I mean, not unless there were maybe some big shift in the government and then, you know, they found records and decided to release them. But it's, it's I think, very, very unlikely. Wow, we'll never know. We'll probably never really know. Um, so that the shop owner, the sole eyewitness to the crime, of course, says also that um, a plainclothes policeman w- was standing near the scene of the crime as it was happening, although there weren't uh, really any other people around, and was heard to say on a cell phone that, quote, this work is done, close <gasps> quote. So, I mean, it doesn't get quite, you know, it, it doesn't really get more uh, um, <laughs> open and shut than that, you that know. That is some shady, in a sense, right? shady Allegedly, work. allegedly. Um, so, according to a former US, UN advisor, there were these kind of secret cells of police uh, hitmen, essentially. And one of these cells was led by Hang Pov. And Hang Pov, presumably under the direction of Hong Sen, you know, on down, um, was given the order to take Vichy out because he was an undesirable person, because he was making a lot of trouble, right, for the government of Hong Sen, you know, etc., and his friends. So um, then he would have farmed that out to the actual killers who then would have taken out you know basically um done the hit and in the documentary there's a um an anonymous uh person who purports to be you know one of these former police members who did this kind of thing and he says you know essentially this is how it would it would work you knew where they were you would go get it done um if you know if if everything went well you just kill the target and you're out if things go go south you just kill everybody what that's What? what he said I this is even that okay. At all. This is going to be even more fucked up. He said they usually would then take the bodies and feed them to alligators. What? And when they asked him, so how many runs, you know, to the alligator pit did you make? And he's like, many, many. And and the the documentarian, you know, he's like more than ten. And the guy's like, <laughs> please. <gasps> oh my god! Oh, I just got chills. I know oh it's god. crazy. <laughs> So, yeah, you know, Vachia's killing, unfortunately, um, was only one of a number, only one of, you know, the most prominent of a number of political assassinations in Cambodia around this time. It was just really, really bad. I really know. I'm not sure how things are there now, honestly. It just, I I don't really know too much about it. But, yeah, not, not that great. And like you said, we'll probably never really know. But, you know, he, he left a big hole. Um, in his society and at the end of the documentary they talked to some different workers and one of the workers said it's like losing a mother Mm. and I thought that was maybe the best way of summing it all up Um, he was like a mother he was like a mother to thousands hundreds of thousands of people you know for whom he stood up for for their rights and his rights and therefore he could not remain, I guess, in in the eyes of certain powerful people in Cambodia. It's unfortunate. 
And because of that same system, we will never know who really did it, probably. It remains a mystery. Wow. So that was... Do- that was wild. <laughs> I know, right? So let me do my sources. Um, Van Ruin and Kevin Doyle at Cambodia Daily. Um, an article on Voice of America. Andrew Nachemson, Nash- maybe. And Jan Siniat at, at uh, Al Jazeera English. Uh, Wikipedia, um, the Who Killed Chia Vachia documentary directed by Bradley Cox. An Amnesty International report titled The Killing of Trade Unionist Chia Vachia. Uh, James Walsh at Al Jazeera English, and an article on the Cambodian League for the Promotion and Defense of Human Rights page. So that's my thing. Sounds good. Yeah. Okay, now you get to go. Now I get to go. Okay. (laughs) Okay, it is my turn. Okay. So, um, (laughs) ting tang, walla walla bang bang. So you... Uh, said you know a good a bit about this, so um, a, little bit. a little bit. So go ahead and chime in when you would like, or don't chime in because I might get to it. <laughs> okay. uh, I'm gonna talk about the 1962. Tell me about it. Sorry, go ahead. I <laughs> I'm gonna talk about the 1962 Alcatraz prison escape. Excite! I am excited. <laughs> okay so this is actually so i knew this was intricate but i didn't know how absolutely fucking wild this was the these people were geniuses macgyvers really really smart and patient and calculating and okay we'll just get into it so let's talk about alcatraz itself so it is a if you don't know it is a maximum security prison on Alcatraz Island, also known as the Rack. Um, it is 1.25 miles off the coast of San Francisco, so you can stand on the um, on the waterfront and look out and see it. So I was just going to say, um, if you've ever seen the movie The Rock, you know what we're talking about. All right, that's where it's set. Um, it opened. Sean Connery. I think I think it was a fort. In the Civil War. I believe so. Yeah, and then familiar. it opened as a prison um, August 11th, 1934. So on Wikipedia, it said the capacity was 300, 312, but it actually held around 1,500 of the baddest of the bad. All right. These people were trouble makers. The inmates here were repeat offenders and always causing problems at other federal prisons. So if you were too much for like, some other place they were like all right get your ass out of here you're going to alcatraz um the prison operators and people in general believe that it was escape proof because of its Mm -hmm. location you know it's on this rocky island um and it's on the rough frigid Mm -hmm. deep san francisco waters the bureau of prison staff and their families i actually didn't know this like live on the island as well and so this place housed a lot of famous criminals. Al Capone, Chicago gangster, um, killed a lot of people, right. drank a lot of alcohol, did a lot of trafficking, made a lot of money. He's come up in the pot a couple of times. Al Capone, yeah. He's a, he, well, we did the, uh, the Valentine's Day massacre. Exactly. And that was under him. And then when I did one, he was like vaguely connected to it too. Yo, this guy is everywhere. Yeah. Um, also, George Machine Gun Kelly was at Alcatraz. He is a pro- also a Prohibition-era gangster, uh, but instead of Chicago, he was in Memphis, Tennessee. And he kidnapped oil tycoon Charles Urschel 
and he actually collected a $200,000 ransom for it. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so he's over there in Alcatraz. We have Whitey, I think it's Bul- Whitey Bulger. Yes, Bulger. He is the boss of boss of the Irish American Winter Hill Gang in the 70s and the 80s. And he uh, was an FBI informant, but he always, always denied it. Um, and he was eventually jailed on 19 counts of murder. So this right. guy was a cold-blooded killer. Yeah, he was in hiding in California for like 20 years or something. Right, yeah. right. Alvin Creepy Carpus. Uh, he's, he, was, uh, uh, he served the most time out of all the inmates at Alcatraz, um, 26 years. He was the leader of the Barker Carpus gang in the 1930s. Um, his partner, Arthur R. Doc Barker, was also in the gang and also spending time in Alcatraz. He was one of the four criminals to be named public enemy number one by the FBI, and he was the only one to be taken alive. All the mm. other ones were killed. So, uh, Robert Franklin Stroud, the Birdman of Alcatraz. Oh. This guy's weird. Um, before being in Alcatraz, he was at Leavenworth Penitentiary in Kansas, where he like sold birds, and he became an ornithologist. And he was in like solitary confinement, like connected three hundred or um, collected like three hundred canaries or something like that. He like um, found the cure to some bird disease dude like yeah yeah he like got shit done because when i read i was like ornithologist what and i was like oh like oh he really was like an ornithologist legit yeah um but he was not a great dude convicted of murder um but he died in prison in 1963 so alcatraz has a great great history of attempted escapes 36 prisoners made 14 escape attempts during its 29 year history um and overall alcatraz wasn't open that long eventually it got really hard to maintain it was too it was more expensive than what it was worth Mm -hmm. so they just took everybody out and put them in different places i'm gonna touch on the battle of alcatraz this was a failed violent escape attempt um it it lasted for a few days between may 2nd and may 4th in 1946 so it was planned by um inmate and bank robber bernard coy along with three other inmates so this um actually has a uh, a clint eastwood no no, it's not this. It has the Clint Eastwood movie. It's the actual escape itself that has the Clint Eastwood movie. My bad. Um, but this was a different prison escape, and they were not successful. So Bernard Coy, Coy three other inmates, Marvin Hubbard, Joseph Kretzer, and Clarence Carnes. Two other inmates, Sam Shockley and Mirren Thompson, joined the escapees after the attempt had begun. So they just kind of hopped ship. So Coy was a style house orderly and he's, you know, looking around, he saw flaws in the security. He noticed that the corrections officers in the gun gallery had set routines so inmates could then predict when the main cell block and the gallery would be unobserved. So Coy, he's he's like, oh, he looks at the the gun gallery had like um, bars, but no extra nothing else. It was just bars. He was like, yo, I could fit through that. So he starves himself. He loses 20 pounds and he grabs some pliers. So guard Bill Miller 
open the gate to conspirator Marvin Hubbard's cell. And then Coy and Hubbard grab the guard, beat him unconscious. Coy takes his keys. He sets two more inmates, Joseph Kretzer and Clarence Carnes, free. And then he uses purloined pipes and pliers to spread the cage bars just wide enough for him to push through. They lock this uh, Bill Miller. They lock him in the cell. Bam. Get the fuck in there. He then uh, sneaks up on the next guard, takes his necktie, strangles him into unconsciousness. This is like some real life action oh movie God, bullshit. Yeah. Um, Coy then raids the gun gallery for weapons and ammo. So now him and five other people are armed and free. Their plan is to take the guards hostage. This is so stupid. Their plan is to take the guards hostage and then negotiate um, their way onto a boat to San Francisco. Yeah, One not a great. Like or yeah, not a great plan. <laughs> no, but it doesn't work. So, um, the guard was smart. Koi tried every key, but none of them, none of them worked. None of them opened the cell block door. Turns out. The guard Miller had hidden the crucial key in the toilet of the cell where he was being held. So he like Mm. took it at 2.07 p.m. The prison siren sounds, which only goes off in like serious emergency. Apparently, it's pretty loud because um, the article the article I was reading talked about how people across the way in San Francisco like gathered along the waterfront. They're like, oh, shit, something's going down. So they could like watch what was going on Um, at this point. Coy had opened fire on the guards that had gathered outside the cell block. One of the conspirators, Joseph Kretzer, panics and he's like, okay, yo, we got to kill the hostages so they can't testify against, against us. With his stolen revolver, he, shoot, he shoots into the cell containing the captive guards and he fatally wounds Bill Miller. Police, military, and prison guards at this point, they begin an an assault from the outside, attacking the cell block with rifle launch grenades. For hours this goes on, night falls, and then on the morning of May 4th, the smoke settles, and the guards storm the cell block. Inside, they find three dead conspirators, Kretzer, Coy, and Hubbard, and three survivors who surrendered. In the end, five people died, three escapees, and two guards. Two of the conspirators who surrendered were sentenced to death, and the other, Clarence Carnes, was actually the youngest prisoner at Alcatraz, so he was given 99 years to life instead of death. So I couldn't leave that out. It was very exciting. Yeah, that's crazy. Now let's talk about the escape itself. The escape was made by inmates Frank Morris, John Anglin, and Clarence Anglin. Um, and if you want to see a like a really over exaggerated, not accurate movie <laughs> about this escape, go check out the Clint Eastwood movie. Um, they also had a fourth accomplice, Alan West, who ended up being left behind. But I'll get into that in a sec. So, Frank, let's get talk about the inmates a little bit. Frank Lee Morris grew up in Washington, D.C. He spent most of his childhood in and out of foster homes. His parents abandoned him. He was convicted of his first crime at age 13, spent most of his early teen years in jail uh, serving lunch to prisoners. He so um, actually all of these uh, inmates, Frank, John, Clarence, they all escaped from previous uh, mm. uh prisons so he escaped from louisiana state 
penitentiary where he was serving 10 years for bank robbery and he wasn't captured until a year later um and then he was sent to alcatraz on a number of charges this time armed robbery narcotics breaking entering burglary uh he was actually caught in in burglary so that's why he was caught so he was extremely intelligent had an iq of 133 and in the top two percent of intelligence amongst those at alcatraz so the brothers, John and Clarence Angland, um, they were born into a family of 13 children in Donaldsonville, Georgia. Uh, so they were inseparable as kids. They were skilled swimmers, note, and often swam in Lake Michigan during the winter for shits and giggles. Uh, they worked as... Sounds terrible. Shut up. Just... Uh, <laughs> worked as farmers and laborers. Clarence was caught breaking into a service station at just 14 years old. The two started robbing bakes together in the 1950s and were given 15 to 20 year sentences that they served at many different prisons from Florida State Prison, Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary, and then Atlanta Penitentiary. Um, They were sent to Alcatraz after numerous failed escape attempts from the Atlanta Penitentiary. So these weren't... These weren't amateurs, not amateurs at all. Nobody at Alcatraz was an amateur for for that matter. The group had actually begun laying plans the previous December um, when one of them, you know, he's like, there's some saw blades here. So they started gathering tools. They used spoons, uh, the saw blades, and they actually made, there's a lot of really clever homemade stuff. They made a homemade drill made from the motor of of a broken vacuum cleaner to loosen and widen the air vents in each of um, their cells at the, at the back. So the entire section of the wall could be removed. Mm-hmm. Um, so once they had that done, they hid. So like when like guards would come by, they hid the holes with, you know, with whatever they could, a suitcase, piece of cardboard, whatever. They covered the noise of their work by Frank Morris's accordion playing. Which I thought was clever. <laughs> That's pretty good. Um, Behind this, behind the this wall, was a common unguarded utility u- utility corridor. They made their way down this corridor and climbed to the roof of their cell block inside the building, where they set up a secret base, a, like a little workshop. So there, they took turns keeping watch for guards in the evening before the last count, and that. So this is like December on, um, to June. That's where they started to gather what they needed to escape. Uh, Some of the stuff was donated to them. Some of the stuff was stolen, including more than 50 raincoats that they stole or gathered. Those were turned into a in like into makeshift life preservers and also a six by 14 foot rubber raft. The seams were stitched together and vulcanized by the hot steam pipes um, in in the prison. So they also built wooden paddles and converted a musical instrument into a tool to inflate the raft. So this is some wow. real life shit. Um, if you're saying MacGyver type shit. Yeah, yeah. At the same time, they were looking for a way out of the building. So the ceiling was a good 30 feet high, but they you they like used everything they had to their advantage. They used a network of pipes and they climbed up those, eventually pried open the ventilator at the top of the shaft, and they kept that in place temporarily by fashioning like a fake bolt out of soap. Um so on the night of June eleventh, 
1962. They crawled through their vents and into the corridor. They gathered their gear. They climbed up and out through the ventilation shaft and got to the roof. Alan West, however, he had used cement to, like, shore up the the crumbling concrete around his vent opening and it had hardened so um it like narrowed the hole um and fixed like the 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 grill in place so by the time he was able to remove it and then rewiden the hole the others had left oh, no. yeah so he like climbed back down and went to sleep <laughs> for real um wow. so the three they are hauling their gear with them. They descended 50 feet to the ground by sliding down a, another pipe, a kitchen vent pipe. Then they climbed two 12-foot barbed wire perimeter fences. There was actually a blind spot at the northeast shoreline where the guards and the the like watchtowers couldn't see. It was near the power plant. So that's where they inflated their rafts. At some time after 10 p.m., this is what the investigators estimate, they boarded the raft, they launched it, and departed toward their objective, Angel Island, two miles to the north. On the morning of June 12th, the inmates were found missing after an early morning bed check. So they're long gone. In their beds were cleverly built dummy heads made from a mixture of soap, toothpaste, concrete dust, and toilet paper. And they topped it with real human hair that they got from the prison barber shop. And they used flesh colored paint from the like the mechanic shop. Uh, so it was these dummy heads that and clothes and towels like stuffed under the blankets made it look like that they were sleeping. And those actually fooled the night guards. There's there's like multiple checks throughout the whole, you know, a whole 24 hours. And those are the ones that fooled the night guards. So that's why they weren't caught to the morning. So they sounded the alarm and a manhunt began immediately. So within two days, a a packet of letters sealed in rubber and related to the men was recovered. Later, some paddle like pieces of wood and bits of rubber inner tube were also found in the water. A homemade life vest was also discovered washed up on uh, the beach. But, you know, they had all these extensive searches and they didn't find any other items. An extensive air, sea, and land search involving multiple military and law enforcement agencies. Um, they did that over the next 10 days. Investigators were, you know, they were, they were pretty sure that the men had drowned, but they never found any bodies. Uh, the FBI did, however, say that it was theoretically possible that they could have made it to Angel Island, but the frigid waters and the choppy waves made it almost impossible. The FBI closed the case in 1979, and none of the inmates were ever heard from again. Pretty crazy. Or were they? Or were they? In 2013, a handwritten letter was sent to the San Francisco Police Department's Richmond Station. The letter claimed to be from escapee John Angland, Quote, my name is John Anglin. I escaped from Alcatraz in June 1962. Yes, we, we all made it that night, but barely. The letter went on to explain that Frank Morris had lived in two th- 2005 and that Clarence Anglin had died of natural causes in 2008. Um, there was a reason that su- suppo- allegedly this guy was writing. The letter said that he was 83 years old, in bad shape, and he wanted to cut a deal with the police. 
quote, I have cancer. If you announce on TV that I will be promised to first go to jail for no more than a year and get medical attention, I will write back to you to let you know exactly where I am. This is no joke. After an investigation, they actually had like an, they kept it for about five years and they didn't really release to the public until January of 2018. So they sent it to the lab, examined it for fingerprints, DNA, analyzed the handwriting, but the results were inconclusive. Mm. Um, yeah. It, it could have been a prank. It could have been real. I don't know. It doesn't seem real. We'll never, we'll never know. Mm. Um, but the thing is that no one, at least this is what I read, that no one else has ever claimed to be them. This is mm-hmm. the first time that something like that has happened. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, but the fates of the three inmates from Alcatraz still remains a mystery. A mystery. Yay. Yay, mystery. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what we're all about. Oh, my God. Uh, what a crazy. I want to watch the movie, though. <laughs> oh, yeah. What, what were your sources? Oh, sources. A lot of Wikipedia, Wikipedia Alcatraz Penitentiary page, Wikipedia June 1962 Alcatraz Prison Escape page, independent UK article by Adam Lusher, history.com article by Natasha Frost. And I got a lot from the official FBI government page on the Alcatraz Escape. Mm-hmm. So they had a lot of good like in- investigation stuff on there. And Alan West... Um, the guy who didn't make it was the one who was like, all right, I'll tell you everything. Here's mm-hmm. what we did. Here's the plan. Yeah. So lots of patience. S- six, seven months of planning. And they did it. Maybe. 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 We'll never know. Could be. Uh, good story. Yeah. Thank so you. thanks for listening, you guys. Thanks for listening. Uh, sorry, th- this one's like coming out later Wednesday. But it's um, Wednesday. But it is still Wednesday, you know, so technically I'm, we're I'm gra- still on I'm graduating time. in two weeks. Right. <laughs> we got shit to do. We have a lot to do. <laughs> but yeah, check us out on our Instagram and my Twitter. Instagram, Twitter. Please follow us on Twitter. MarioTex30 and add murdery thingy. I believe is our handle. I never heard of I know, right? Um, You'll find it. You can visit our Patreon page and uh, yeah, just all the stuff. So. Is it time? For weird shit in the news. I thought, I don't have any. I do. Oh, I thought you didn't have any either. Okay, you go. Well, I found it last minute. Oh, sorry, sorry. Weird shit in the news. Weird shit in the news. So, this is from um, uh, jpost.com, the Jerusalem Post, uh, an article by Zachary Kaiser, Quote, opium-addicted parrots terrorize Indian poppy Oh, yeah. You showed me this earlier. (laughs) Amazing. So this was in Madhya Pradesh, region of India. Interesting, because I just talked about the the scams over there. So there really were um, uh, parrots terrorizing poppy farmers in recent months. So there's it's this, like, serious problem. They've been experiencing monumental losses to their product. Um... So, also isolated rainfall caused a damper on this year's product, but the parents, the parents, the parrots are exponentially adding to the farmer's distress, ruining the farmer's products in the process. Um, So, apparently, they, like, tried making loud sounds and even using firecrackers to scare them, but nothing helped. 
Um, so one poppy flower produces 20 to 25 grams of opium each. However, the farmers are suffering from the parents, the parrots feeding on the plants up to 40 times a day, with some even flying away with the poppy pods. Wow. So they're getting high and coming back for more. Mm-hmm. And it's devastating. We, quote, we have tried every trick possible to keep the birds at bay, but these addicts keep coming back, even at the risk of their life, the farmer concluded. That'd be crazy. I don't know birds could get high. Yeah, no, I, I think anim- animals uh, of all stripes, you know, not only humans, do uh, yeah, gain some, some kind of, you know, altered uh, mental state, you know. I mean, we know like elephants do this with alcohol and and uh, like uh, naturally fermented, you know, berries and stuff. Uh, so yeah. Thanks for chiming in, Mozzie. Thanks, Mozzie. <laughs> I don't know if you guys can hear. I that. don't know. <laughs> okay. He's pretty loud. Okay. Are we? Is that? Are we done? Are we done? I'm done. I think so. Yeah, I don't have any weird shit. I'm sorry. That's okay. Okay. I think the opium addicted parrots uh, did it for us. Yeah, that's a good one. 